What is going on, everyone? Welcome back to A Thousand Cuts, a BSA podcast. I am your host, Demetrius, here with my comrades and co-hosts, Glenn and Tony. Say what's up to the people, man. It's good to be back. Hey, what's up, y'all? How y'all doing? Yo, what's going on, people? What's going on? Yes, yes, we are back. Ninth episode. Yeah, we got a lot to cover. Been a lot of shit going on globally and nationally as well. But first, first things first, we got to do a little bit of housekeeping, y'all. We got to do a little bit of housekeeping. Seems that one of our previous episodes caused a bit of a stir on the internet, on Twitter land. And we just want to let y'all know that us as a podcast, us as an organization, we're going to have guests on to do interviews and such. That does not mean (laughs) that we endorse every single thing that our guest says or that our guests do. Now, we'd figure that we are talking to rational and reasonable and intelligent adults. And if you listen to this podcast, you are exactly that, especially our patrons. But we just need to state that we do not endorse every single thing that our guests say or that our guests do, despite the fact that we have them on, that we find them interesting, that there are places where our principles and ideology and even our uh, strategy and tactics may connect. So we we just want that to be known that sort of a housekeeping rule because we know it it caused a bit of a in my opinion an unnecessary stir but it is what it is it's fucking twitter it's just absolute shithole nightmare most of the time but yeah i just wanted to get us started off on that note we do not completely endorse everything that our guests say or do and even our own statements here on the podcast are not always are not a complete and total representation or reflective as the organization as a whole. There are many multiple members of BSA who have different viewpoints on different things. We're all diverse individuals with our own mind. And that's just the nature of any sort of autonomous collective or organization. That's just how it works. Yeah. Just wanted to start out with that housekeeping note. Well, we're going to go ahead and jump to the news because it's a lot of shit that has been going on. I'm going to go ahead and start with the international news. So this Monday, March 8th for International Women's Day, the women of Mexico came to march and hold demonstrations in Mexico City to bring awareness to the epidemic of femicide in their nation. The demonstrations turned chaotic as protesters clashed with violent police forces and demonstrators attempted to damage the so-called peace wall that was placed around the National Palace. An article from the Washington Post says, quote, Femicide protests in Mexico City turned violent Monday after women clashed with riot police stationed outside the National Palace. The residence of President Andreas Manuel Lopez Arbador. Activists say he's failed to take rampant sexual violence seriously, even as it's led to the deaths of 10 women a day. Lopez Arbador, also known by the acronym AMLO dismissed the protests that coincided with International Women's Day, arguing that they were spurred by his conservative opponents. But the populist president with left-wing origins has long had tense relationships with feminist movements, has in recent weeks stoked the anger of many women for his support of a gubernatorial candidate accused of sexual assault, alongside continuing high cases of gender-based violence. 
A report from NBC News details the experience of one young woman who was detained for being involved with an anti-femicide protest. It was like being in a battle. People were running everywhere while shots were heard. <clears throat> Naomi Quadzili Rojas de Dominguez, 22, found herself running for her life in Cancun, wondering how a demonstration for women's rights against femicide or the intentional killing of women had turned into an assault. As the crowd around her was looking for a way out, she saw several police officers beating some teenage women. She ran toward the officers and screamed at them until they left the young women alone, who then fled in terror. Next, the police officers turned their attention to her and after beating her, transferred her and other protesters to the municipal palace, the seat of the city council. They kept me apart for a moment, Rojas Dominguez said. They finished beating me and sent me with the other girls. And when I saw them, it was a horrible scene because they were all handcuffed, lying on the floor in a corner. They took me with them, and that's when I was sexually abused by a policewoman. She described what took place after she and others participated in a demonstration on November 9th, where civic and feminist organizations had mobilized to demand justice for the killing of Bianca Ala Lorenzana, a 20-year-old girl known as Alexis. Inside the official facilities, Rojas Dominguez tried to defend herself, but she said she was immobilized because of the, the handcuffs. The policewoman hit her in the face, pulled her hair and scratched her neck while making fun of her. Then they began to transfer them without telling them where they were going. At that moment, you don't even know how scared we were because as a woman, you fear that they will rape you. They will kill you. When they put me in the palace, I lived all my fears. There they raped me. They beat me. I felt like I was disappearing, Rojas Dominguez said, recounting the events of last fall. The report goes on to state that, quote, in Mexico, Protests against gender violence have increased from 2015 to 2020. At the same time, femicides under investigation have increased each year from 411 in 2015 to 860 in 2020. But these investigations are only looking at a fraction of crimes against women, according to groups including UN Women. In 2019, Mexico registered 971 alleged victims of femicide and an alleged 2,862 female victims of intentional homicides. Only a quarter, 25.3% of the murder cases were investigated as gender-related crimes. The system is not adequately prepared to investigate and process crimes from a gender perspective. There are many more presumed cases. Femicides only began to be officially registered in the National Public Security System in 2015, end quote. Now on to Haiti. Thousands of citizens in Haiti have been demonstrating against their corrupt presidency. The president of Haiti, Jovenel Mose, has refused to step down from his position on February 7th, the day that a new presidential term is supposed to begin, by exploiting a loophole from the time of his election. Mose has claimed that he will step down on February 2022. Mose has also claimed that police arrested 23 people who were going to engage in a coup attempt against him. One of those arrested was a Supreme Court judge that was supported by the opposition to potentially become the next transitional president and a high-ranking police official. An article from the Associated Press says that, quote, Haiti's constitution allows presidents to serve a five-year term. And opponents argue that Mose's already reached that limit. Mose won after former President Michael Matelli's term expired in 2016, receiving more than 50% of the vote, but with only a 21% voter turnout in a country of more than 11 million people. 
The elections were so chaotic, though, that it forced the appointment of a provisional president for one year. So Mose wasn't sworn in until February 2017. He has repeatedly said he will step down in February 2022 and has called for legislative and presidential elections to be held September 19th with a runoff scheduled for November 21st. The administration of U.S. President Joe Biden appears to support Mose, with the State Department spokesman recently saying that a newly elected president should succeed him when his term ends in 2022. The article goes on to say that critics accuse Mose of amassing more power in recent months, noting that he already has been ruling by presidential decree ever since he dissolved the majority of the parliament in January 2020 after failing to hold legislative elections in 2019 amid political gridlock. Mose also has approved a decree that created an intelligence agency that answers only to the president and another that limits the powers of a court that audits government contracts and had accused Mose and other governments of embezzlement and fraud, allegations they have denied. Another recent decree classifies robbery, arson, and blocking public roads, a common ploy during protests, as terrorism, leading to heavy penalties. Some of the decrees drew rare criticism from the international community as well. Opponents also are rejecting an upcoming constitutional referendum scheduled for April 25th, the first one to be held in more than 30 years. It calls for the creation of compulsory military service for those age 18, would create the position of a vice president to replace that of prime minister and establish a unicameral legislature to be elected every five years to replace the current Senate and Chamber of Deputies. In addition, the draft only states that a president cannot serve for more than two terms. It says nothing about whether they can be served consecutively as is currently prohibited. Experts note that the current constitution bars changes to it via referendum, end quote. So now we move on over to the UK. In the UK, an outcry over women's public safety has ensued after 33-year-old Sarah Everand was kidnapped and murdered by London Metropolitan Police Officer Wayne Cousins in South East England. Cousins was arrested and charged for her death. A vigil with all women attendees was held for Miss Everand Saturday night in Clapman Commons. After police entered the area to disperse the gathering under the guise of following COVID-19 regulations, the event degenerated into violence as the police force used heavy-handed tactics to clear the area. Multiple demonstrators were arrested. A report in the Wall Street Journal says that, quote, the case has struck a nerve in Britain, in part because Mrs. Everand had done many of the things women are often advised to do to ensure their safety. She wore bright, visible clothing when she left her friend's apartment in Clapham at 9 p.m. for a walk home to Brixton that should have taken 50 minutes at most. She had called another friend to say she was on her way, and she had stuck to well-lit main roads, yet she was abducted, an investigator suspect by a policeman. Many women have shared their own experiences of being harassed or feeling unsafe walking city streets. Some described wearing comfortable shoes in case they had to break into a run or pretending to be engaged in a loud phone call to deter potential attackers. Others told of how wedging keys between their knuckles had become second nature so as to inflict as much damage as possible if they need to strike out in hopes of buying enough time to get away safely. An article in the Washington Post reports that, quote, Everin's name continues to trend in the United Kingdom as thousands share the ways in which they try to stay safe in their everyday lives while walking, exercising and commuting. The precautions vary from wearing bright colors to carrying keys to pretending to talk on the phone while feeling intimidated or threatened by men. Other women say they can't drink too much. Others don't wear headphones at night. 
Some opt for flat shoes in case they have to run from a dangerous situation. Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, tweeted Thursday that there will be few, if any, women who don't completely understand and identify with Sky News political correspondent Kate McCann's Twitter thread on the issue. The campaign for men to change their behavior and for authorities to better protect women came as the organization UN Women United Kingdom released new data showing that 97% of British women between the ages 18 and 24 have experienced sexual harassment in public places, and about 45% of women surveyed expressed a lack of trust in authorities, saying they didn't think that reporting the harassment would lead to change. In some cities around the world, nearly 9 in 10 women report feeling unsafe in public spaces, the report found. End quote. A report on the vigil from MSN News states that scores of protesters clashed with officers after defying a police ban to pay respects to Sarah Everand in Clapham Common on Saturday night. A sea of flowers and messages on cards had built up at the park's mansion. One message reading, hashtag I am Sarah. Just before 6 p.m. to the sound of a drum, a group of women shouted, not in her name and not your place. Angry crowds shouted shame on you and booed loudly when police walked onto the bandstand around 6.30 p.m. Tensions then escalated as police tried to clear the vigil from the area. At one point, there were clashes with police who put on a large show of force to encourage people to go home. Several female organizers were arrested and bundled to the ground as supporters shouted, arrest your own. Independent legal observer Zara Hassan of Black Protest Legal Support said at least five people, mostly women, were arrested. She said the level of police violence today was immense. These women were only here to remember the victims of male violence, but were subjected to it themselves. The police relied on COVID regulations to disperse a peaceful visual. We are concerned about the police failure to consider our fundamental human right to protest. Now on to Myanmar. In Myanmar, the transition from citizen leadership under Aung San Suu Kyi during its second term to a brutal military dictatorship is still underway. Thus far, 70 protesters have been killed since the coup on February 1st. In the small town of Miang, located in central Myanmar, over eight people were injured and 20 people killed when police forces opened fire on a crowd of unarmed civilians. An article in the New York Times reports that Yu Mit Zaw Wing was among the crowd that scattered with a burst of live ammunition in the late morning outside of Miang's police station. When he looked back, he saw a body with half of its head blown apart on a street that he has walked all his life. He did not know whose body it was but he said a mason and a bus driver were among the dead. They were shooting people like shooting birds, Mr. Miet Zawin said of the police officers, some of whom he said he knows personally because Miang is a small town where almost everyone knows each other. How can they change from nonviolent police to monsters, he added. The world is upside down. Mr. Miet Zawin's account of carnage was corroborated by two other witnesses. The article goes on to state, while the bulk of the deaths have been in big cities like Yangon and Mandalay, security forces have shot and killed people in at least 17 different towns across the country. After analyzing more than 50 videos of such killings, Amnesty International concluded in a report published Thursday that the security forces were using battlefield weaponry on protesters. In some cases, commanders ordered extrajudicial killings, Amnesty International said, while in other instances, bullets were sprayed indiscriminately. The Tadmadal as the Myanmar military is known, has killed and persecuted the country's citizens for decades. The worst attacks have been reserved for ethnic minorities, such as Rohingya Muslims, whose persecution is being tried as genocide in international courts. These are not the actions of overwhelmed individual officers making poor decisions, 
said Joanne Mariner, director of Crisis Response and Amnesty International, in a statement. These are unrepentant commanders already implicated in crimes against humanity, deploying their troops and murderous methods in the open. The drumbeat of death across Myanmar in recent weeks has shocked a populace accustomed to massacres by the military. On Thursday, three people were shot dead in cities of Yangon, Mandalay, and Bago. Another person who had been shot on March 3rd in the town of Mianchen succumbed to his injuries on Thursday as well, end quote. There was also a violent police raid that took place in Minglar Tong Nyat neighborhood in Yangon against railroad workers who went on strike as a form of protest against the coup. An article by the LA Times reports that, quote, the raid on well workers comes just days after several Myanmar unions, including the Myanmar Railway Workers Union Federation, issued a joint call for a nationwide work stoppage. They said the strike would be part of a broader effort for the full extended shutdown of the Myanmar economy. The report later goes on to state that authorities have also moved to shut down independent reporting, both through arrests of journalists and closure of media outlets. State railway workers in Yangon and across the country were among the earliest organized supporters of the protest movement and their strike began soon after the coup. Police attempted to intimidate railway workers in Mandalay one night last month by roaming through the housing area and shouting and randomly firing guns. The junta, now in charge of the country, formally called the state administration council and directly acknowledged the effectiveness of the rail strike. The state-run Global New Light of Myanmar newspaper on Tuesday cited officials as saying that the rail transport between Yangon and Mandalay will resume in the near future. It also acknowledged that the banking sector has been affected, end quote. Tony, would you like to pick it up here for us with the national news? So first up in national news, Texas lifts mass mandate. On this Wednesday, the state of Texas lifted its statewide mass mandate despite the warnings from public health officials. A report from the Texas Tribune states, Texas's statewide mask mandate has ended as of March 10th. Businesses are also now allowed to operate at full capacity, as long as the hospitals in the region haven't been treating a large share of patients for COVID-19. Governor Greg Abbott announced he was loosening those restrictions so businesses and families in Texas have the freedom to determine their own destiny. Health officials still emphasize the importance of wearing facial masks to contain the spread of the virus, alongside hand washing and social distancing. Several Democratic leaders called the executive order dangerous, including President Joe Biden, who said it was a big mistake to end the mask mandate. In addition, three of Abbott's four coronavirus medical advisors say they were not directly consulted before he lifted the mandate. The report later states, Abbott said the state is in a completely different position than it was last year, with more access to testing, successful treatments, protective equipment, and vaccines. However, Texas is still descending from a harsh winter surge that killed thousands and overwhelmed intensive care units across the state. Abbott's decision to relax restrictions was announced as Texas averaged over 200 reported deaths a day, and as Houston reported the presence of every COVID-19 variant, the Houston Chronicle reported. Yeah. Next up in national news, increase in violence against Asian Americans. Recently, racially motivated hate crimes against Asian Americans in the U.S. have been increasing in frequency and intensity. An article in the Times reports that since the start of the pandemic last spring, Asian Americans have faced racist violence at a much higher rate than in previous years. The NYPD reported that hate crimes motivated by anti-Asian sentiment jumped 1,900% in New York City in 2020. 
Stop AAPI Hate, a reporting database created at the beginning of the pandemic as a response to the increase in racial violence, received 2,800 reports of anti-Asian discrimination between March 19th and December 31st, 2020. The violence has continued into 2021. And President Joe Biden signed an executive order denouncing anti-Asian discrimination shortly after taking office in January. While anti-Asian violence has taken place nationwide, and particularly in major cities, the uptick in attacks in 2021 has been particularly focused in the Bay Area, especially in San Francisco and Oakland's Chinatown. Many attribute the 2020 uptick to the xenophobic rhetoric of Biden's predecessor. Former President Trump repeatedly referred to COVID-19 as the China virus, blaming the country for the pandemic. In doing so, Trump followed in a long American history of using diseases to justify anti-Asian xenophobia, one that dates back to the 19th and 20th centuries and has helped shape the perception of Asian Americans as perpetual foreigners. There's a clear correlation between President Trump's incendiary comments, his insistence on using the term Chinese virus, and the subsequent hate speech spread on social media and the hate violence directed towards us, says Russell Jung, a former founder of Stop AAPI Hate and a professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University. It gives people a license to attack us. The current spate of attacks on our elderly is a part of how that rhetoric has impacted the broader population. The AAPI community is deeply conflicted as to how this issue can be tackled. Many are saying that more policing is not the answer. The Time article goes on to say, high-profile Asian Americans have helped draw attention to the recent surge in hate crimes. Actors Daniel Day Kim and Daniel Wu shared the video of the 91-year-old man being pushed down in Oakland, Chinatown on Twitter, offering a $25,000 reward to anyone who provide information leading to their arrest and conviction of the attacker, who had also pushed down a 60-year-old man, as well as a 55-year-old woman who was left unconscious from the attack. The skyrocketing number of hate crimes against Asian American continues to grow. Despite our repeated pleas for help, Kim wrote in the tweet, going on to reference a Chinese American man who was beat to death in 1982. The crimes ignored and even excused, remember Vincent Chen, end quote. The Oakland police later charged 28-year-old Yaha Muslim with assault, battery, and elder abuse. He was already in custody for unrelated charges when he was identified. As a result, Kim and Wu donated the 25000 to community organizations aimed at stopping anti-Asian hate. Kim's tweet brought up mixed feelings for many people in the AAPI community. On the one hand, Kim identified a long-time grievance for many Asian Americans that violence against them has often been dismissed and that their struggles and even their existence often feel invisible to others in this country. Kim's reference to the 1982 murder of Chen was a poignant reminder of a hate crime that led to a major mobilization of Asian Americans and the civil rights discourse, creating a significant wave of Asian American activism and a memorable point of solidarity with black racial justice organizers. At the same time, however, Kim's offer of a reward for identifying the person who attacked Asian American elders underscored another problem with addressing racial justice in the U.S. How to tackle anti-Asian violence without relying on law enforcement institutions that have historically targeted black and brown communities. 
Many in the AAPI community were troubled by the actor's social media posts, giving the alleged attacker was a black man. Kim Tran, a consultant and writer, voiced her disagreement with this tactic on Twitter. Quote, listen, if you don't understand why it's problematic to offer 25K for information about a black man in Oakland, I need you to stay off all goddamn panels, Tran wrote in a series of tweets. This is the moment we need to ask ourselves, to what end? If it was for an accountability process, okay, but I highly doubt that. Lastly, this looks a lot like a bounty on a black person funded by Asian American celebrities. I have major, major doubts, end quote. Trans tweet reflected a larger sentiment online from many Asian Americans that keeping their community safe should not mean turning to increased policing, especially in the wake of a national reckoning this summer with systemic police brutality and the disproportionate harm it causes black and brown communities who often share space with Asian Americans. That perspective is informed by a long and complicated history between the Asian American and black communities in the U.S., which has included both solidarity, like the Third World Liberation Front, which helped create equal education opportunities for students of color and the creation of ethnic studies, as well as interracial conflict. Mabuti Louie says the case that fostering anti-Black sentiment or focusing on interracial conflict in this moment takes away from recognizing that racism is a result of white supremacy. Quote, if the bigger problem is anti-Asian sentiment, putting someone in jail doesn't solve that problem, she says calling for an approach that allows perpetrators to be both held accountable and encouraged to change. All of us really need to do work into our communities to unlearn these harmful narratives about each other. End quote. Appreciate that, Tony. Appreciate that, man. That was, that was a lot. That was a lot. How y'all, uh, how y'all feeling about the world today? <laughs> mm. Oh man, that was a lot. Shocked at the disgusting amount of violence against women. Shot. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. I, I don't even, I don't even know what to say. I, I want, I it's, wanted to go back up in the news document. I just wanted to read this again and make sure I was reading. It said activists say he failed to take rampant sexual violence serious, even as it led to the deaths of ten women a day. Ten women a day Mexico. in Mexico. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, the thread that I found was like, it's violence against women that's coming a lot from like police officers, right? A lot of what we described here is from police and security forces. But at this point in time, like we were saying before, like, if you don't believe in patriarchy now, like, I don't know, you're just fucking delusional. Like, I don't don't know. Because I mean, those statistics are just unfucking believable. And you know what I found to be one of the things that got me was reading about the shooting and about that man's testimony, which is why I included it in there. He said, he had walked those streets all his life, essentially. And he knew, he knew some of the police officers that had opened up fire on them. Think about that. Yeah. Think about that. Yeah, it's completely absurd. The levels of violence that people just endure and can dull out. Like, <laughs> sometimes the news can be quite unsettling. <laughs> you really get into the, the, the nitty gritty of like how these forces they're supposed you know they protect property right we know this absolutely yeah like they're established in the popular imagination as forces that are supposed to help to protect the common man or whatever and this is wild when you look at the reality of it like the inverse is so 
different, you know, it's like, yeah. And specifically the violence to women though, like the aspect of that, like how it's just so pervasive. And like you said, if you didn't really believe patriarchy, like it's rearing an ugly head, just like everything has been rearing its ugly head in this time. Like we're coming to a critical, like just critical mass of like different mm -hmm. countervailing like forces of mm -hmm. just oppression. Just, you know, on one end you have the situation with, with violence to black folks in the, in the country. And we're going to get into a little bit with things regarding the, the judicial system here. And even on that spectrum of the violence against women with regards to situations that have occurred here time and time again with the police and how they treat black women, how they treat other women of color, the way that all these different just elements of capital continue to put his boot on all of our necks. And like, literally you can't unbind those links, like those different forces, those different ways in which we're all like intersecting with one another. They're all integrated into this system of capital and how it functions and how it maintains control. And so we can't separate and divide up our different positions. Like they're all interrelated and we have to work towards, you know, dismantling this shit on the whole. You can't disregard patriarchy and consider that something not of most like shit man if you're not thinking about feminism if you're not talking to women and listening and hearing what they have to say and take their issues into account in your organizing and the ways in which you engage with your community like you're not taking a huge portion of your community into account when you're trying to build towards the future and you just gotta fucking listen and let them take the lead on you know what's most pressing on a lot of the things that we all have to deal with, you know, it's crazy. Absolutely. Yeah, man, that it's, 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 it's fucking, it's fucking jarring, but you know, solidarity to the people of, of, of Myanmar and in Haiti, that shit is just blatant fucking corruption. There, that's just blatant authoritarianism. I don't know what other way to. It's for some reason, it's, it's interesting that to me personally, that more and more of these extreme events are occurring with such brazen disregard for like media attention, things like that. Like, I mean, yes. I know these atrocities have always gone on, but like, it seems like there's really like no, like mask off for real. Like motherfuckers yeah, it just, seems, like, yeah, more, there's more the of a frequency. Yeah, it seems like more, there's more of a frequency, mm -hmm. more of an intensity. Of course, we know these sort of disgusting human rights violations have always been going on around the world, but this shit is fucking, this shit is really weird. This shit is really, it's just, the whole thing is just popping off. Like you said, it's, the whole thing is just fucking mask off. Yeah, and, and so to me, I just can't get away from that thread of policing, you know, further proof that the global institution of policing is just a fucking threat to the species to our survival. And what's crazy to me is like, again, about that man's account of how he knew some of those officers that were shooting them. To me, that sort of account, that sort of narrative totally destroys the sort of argument that you hear from people who don't know any better, who believe that police forces, despite how horrid and fucking destructive that they can be to our society, that police are, are fundamentally good because, you know, there are particular individuals in the police department or whatever in the institution who are good people right or who have good personalities you know or it, it even utterly destroys the false notion that the problem with american policing is that we need more people who look like us to police us right you know that yes. somehow like you said he, he he said it. i grew up you know i knew these people before all this happened you know they weren't strangers and that's what's crazy is like i mean you hear these I've, I've heard this argument so many times and it just it never ceases to piss me the fuck off and i've just told people it's like oh 
someone in my family is a cop and da 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 and they're good people and the cops have helped me and I'm like well I've just resorted to telling people like I frankly do not give a flying fuck if anyone in your family is a cop that doesn't mean anything to me that means nothing because the overall institution of policing is a menace how do you explain that how do you explain that across various countries various cultures they have different histories different cultural contexts different political setups stuff like that how can you explain that that across all of these countries the problems with policing are universal they're the same it's the exact same issues that we have in the u.s it's the exact same stuff now of course our police have their own unique pathologies but it's the same It's blatant human rights abuses i mean rape i mean all sorts of shit it's the same stuff you know and, and so it's just like how do you account for that a lot of these police forces have been trained by american police forces yes there's also that there's also that i mean so how do you account for that how do you account for that consistency across the world of this institution being a fucking threat and i've told people one of my best friends is in the marines love him to death one of my best friends is in the marines i still think we should abolish the fucking military <laughs> I, I just hate that sort of that sort of logical fallacy of like proximity that just because you're close to someone who does a particular thing then the thing that they because they're a good person the thing that they engage in just is just the best shit ever and it's, it doesn't make any fucking sense no one gives a shit of whether or not your fucking idiot ass uncle or your dumb ass cousin is a cop cops suck it is an right. inhumane position to have in the world you know, it's making the world the worst place. Gonna say, well, well, real quick Tony I was just gonna say if you have like family if you're somebody who has people who are illegal in your family and shit like that typically the kind of fucked up shit that they typically try to get into like what kind of like egos these types of people have the people who have family who work in those realms typically know the like the real nitty gritty of like how these motherfuckers actually operate they just want to talk about it the motherfuckers cover up shit all the time it's like that in all kinds of realms you know oh absolutely I mean we see the data policing families have disproportionate disproportionate rates of domestic violence and police officers have disproportionate rates of like alcoholism and fucking substance abuse. And there are what I try to get people to understand is like the cons of having police outweigh the pros. They always have and they right. always I will, fire. you know, they always have and they always will. And I also want to say solidarity to the fucking railroad workers of Myanmar who are like, bro, we just finna do a mass ass general strike against this shit. Fuck that. We are not working for fascists. So shout out to them. That yeah, shit is that shit was great. That was probably the most uplifting part of this depressing ass <laughs> news segment. Again, the violence against Asian Americans, man. That's what what do you, what do y'all think about that? Because there's a lot to that. There's a lot to unpack on that. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty fucked up. Go ahead, Tony. What are you gonna say? No, I was gonna say just like the article said. I think Trump was a. I think it was a, a genesis for a lot of the violence, especially huge increase that we've seen i think there would have been an increase without him as well but i i think it also it shows you what type of society we live in to where this is instead of being mad at governor abbott for and i know this these happen in different places you know what i'm saying in general instead of being mad at the inability of our government we get mad at more than just a race like a like group of people like it, it extends from Pacific Islanders to Koreans that everyone knows, but, and yeah, it, 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 I think it's indicative of the society we live in. Yeah. I would, I would also add to that, that it's unfortunately the way that propaganda can really like mold people's perception of things is it really does have an influence and it's just, yeah, it's pervasive. Once you have certain people getting behind 
certain types of messaging and shit, that pretty much opens the, the floodgates for some of the most insidious people who are just looking for an opportunity to engage in their most deep-seated fantasies of being the oppressors that they want to be, right? So once you have the, the go-ahead, like the same thing with the uptick in fascist, you know, rhetoric, uptick in more far-right, militia-style organizing and things like that, like you get a lot of that stuff once you start to get that go-ahead from some of the different folks who sit in different positions of power and shit. And as we mentioned with a uh, previous president and also just previous historical remnants from the past of how folks here in this country have engaged with Asian Americans and stuff and the relationships there. There's been fucking genocides of Asian folks back in the day, like down there, massacres. I feel exactly where, I think it's in like California or something, but this was what, a hundred or so years ago? It's not even that far away in our, you know, previous history in this country. And, you know, th those things, and even when you look at the situation with the internment camps and stuff in World War II, you have all these different scenarios in which Asian citizenship and in very similar veins, how black people are viewed in this country, whereas like Asian citizenship is more something that can be earned and uh, taken away. And like for a long time, being black in this country, being, you know, even to this day, in some cases, folks, you know, perceptions of what that implies in your position in this, this culture and this society. There's some sort of fucking white supremacists out there, to be frank. They want to instill that type of dominion over people and create those kind of divisions. And when you have those kinds of ideologies that are in, to put it simply, they're basically fostering and growing and becoming more mutating and forming it in different ways. If you want to look at the QAnon as, as such, or if you want to look at Boogaloo or whoever the fuck, right? Like you got these different folks who are engaging in these types of ideas and it stems from a history. And if we don't engage with that history and make sure that we draw from it, and that includes the history of folks coming together to unify around these issues and find the ways in which, again, the way we intersect, the way that we all suffer when we, instead of working together, we decide that we want to pick each other apart for various differences that we get into these situations where you have people acting out their sadistic fantasies because the society is at a state where fuck it like, like let's engage in some, some heinous acts because especially in a time like a pandemic where folks are being stressed and stretched and pulled apart in various directions by the forces of economic hardship and crisis of public health and just the psychosocial torment that that's going to reap on folks is you're going to have folks who are going to lash out because they don't have any other avenues or any other channels and i'm not saying that's an absolve of all the the wrong behind some of those actions but you can begin to understand how what would lead people to down these roads and cause some of these things and when you can understand the, the routes that would lead people in that direction i think that's how you can rethread the, basically the paths to how we got here and figure out more public health and ways in which that we can improve the conditions for folks by changing how we respond to things like a pandemic, for instance. We all know this pandemic response was pretty fucking terrible from the vaccine rollout to just the, the messaging around the virality of the fucking virus to begin with. And that goes back, you know, once again to the propaganda that was being disseminated with regards to Asian Americans. So it's all very historical and it, it all connects in different ways that if you ask me, it's what's bound to happen, right? Like it's, and it's, we don't really point out how it's 
a repetition of forces to creating ways to divide us, we really won't be able to contend with these issues. And we really got to pull folks together on it. Yeah, absolutely. We, we definitely need solidarity at the forefront because it just seems like every fucking thing is just shitting the bed all at the same time around the globe. And we have to relate all these struggles together to move forward. But so I wanted to go ahead and go ahead and jump into our main topic here. We're talking about the settlement that George Floyd's family received recently, a $27 million settlement because they won their suit against Minneapolis. And also we would be remiss to not mention that today is the one year anniversary of Breonna Taylor's death. So I, I just wanted to get y'all before we, there's an article here. I wanted to read a short article here from the New York Times reporting on it, but I just wanted to get y'all's perspective on how, how y'all feeling. What are y'all thinking about the situation thus far? I'm pretty sure I know what y'all are thinking, but just go ahead and sound off. Man, a lot. Like you said, definitely thinking a lot. First, when we're talking about this post-production, I guess if you want to call it that, but uh, our post-production chat, uh, and we're talking about like, how do you put a price tag on life? How is that price tag going to be perceived for the rest of his family's life? The externalities of policing and, and how we're able to afford that, but people are homeless. This is, it brings a lot of questions to mind. And one real, really, really strong answer that the only answer is abolition. The only answer, just like you were talking about the abolition of the, the military earlier, the complete abolition of the police state, the complete abolition of policing and the carceral system. Glenn, uh, how about you? Yeah, Tony kind of hit it on the head with regards to yeah, the abolition. That's basically the route. Like We have to stop putting all of our resources into this system that is just killing us. And But beyond that, with regards to the price tag, right, the quantification of a person's life, their existence on this earth, and that being taken away by a state apparatus. And the way that is budgeted out, right? Like the police have that in the budget. That's part of the transaction of having state force to protect property, to protect capitalist relations. And again, as I guess that's my thread for today is to, to talk about history. It just has a lot of historical reverberance to some of the different practices and things that have brought us to this point with regards to how this country has functioned. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely, man. Absolutely. So I'm going to go ahead and read this article here from the New York Times. George Floyd's family settles suit against Minneapolis for $27 million. The city of Minneapolis agreed on Friday to pay $27 million to the family of George Floyd, the black man whose death sent off months of protests after a video showed a white police officer kneeling on his neck. The payment to settle the family's suit was among the largest of its kind, and it came as the officer, Derek Chauvin, was set to go on trial this month for charges including second-degree murder. As the settlement was announced by city officials and lawyers for Mr. Floyd's family, Mr. Chauvin sat in a courtroom less than a mile away where jurors were being selected for his trial. Mayor Jacob Fry called the agreement a milestone for Minneapolis's future. Ben Crump, the civil rights lawyer who is among those representing Mr. Floyd's family, said he could set an example for other communities. A quote, after the eyes of the world rested on Minneapolis in its darkest hour, now the city can be a beacon of hope and light and change for cities across America and across the globe, In Quote, he said, but legal experts said the agreement might make it even harder to see an impartial jury in the case of Mr. Chauvin, which was already a challenge because of the attention given to Mr. Floyd's death and the intense demonstrations that followed. 
In the first four days of jury selection this week, nearly all of the potential jurors said they had seen the video of his arrest, including all but one of the seven selected for the trial so far. Mary Moriarty, a former chief public defender in Minneapolis, said that the timing could hardly be worse for the court case, and Mr. Sheldon's lawyers might even ask for a mistrial. She added that the defense team might have reason to worry that jurors' views could be affected by the deal if they saw it as an indication that Mr. Chauvin's actions were inappropriate. That's very telling. That's, that's very interesting here. We're going to go deeper into that in a bit. Mr. Chauvin's lawyer and a spokesman for the state attorney general's office, which is prosecuting the, the case, did not respond to requests for comment. A spokeswoman for Minneapolis said the settlement was independent and separate from the criminal trial underway. The large payment was a sign of the magnitude of the response to Mr. Floyd's death, which led to protests in hundreds of cities, changes in local and state laws, and a reckoning over racism and police abuse. In Minneapolis, a police station and many businesses were burned over several nights of unrest. At a news conference, Mr. Crump said the agreement would, quote, allow the healing to begin, end quote, in the city. That's another interesting part we can go into. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but I'm pissed, bro. Yeah, I, yeah. He said the family had pledged to donate $500,000 to lift up the neighborhood around 38th Street and Chicago Avenue, the corner where the police confronted Mr. Floyd on May 25th. The officers had arrived after a store clerk called 911 and said Mr. Floyd had tried to pay with a fake $20 bill. Mayor Frey said on Twitter that the agreement, quote, reflects a shared commitment to advancing racial justice and a sustained push for progress, end quote. Some community members, however, were skeptical of his assertion, of course, end quote. We haven't even taken a step, let alone a mile towards fundamentally changing this police force, end quote, said D.A. Bollock, a filmmaker who lives in Minneapolis, quote, we're just waiting for the next George Floyd to happen, end quote. Mr. Bollock said he imagined that Mr. Floyd's family will return every penny if they could have him back. Quote, all I want to talk about is how we're not going to have police out here killing black folks, end quote, he said. Quote, that's really my bottom line, regardless of the size of the settlement, end quote. Two years ago, Minneapolis agreed to pay $20 million to the family of Justine R uh, Rusich, a white yoga instructor who was fatally shot by Mohammed Noor, a police officer who is Somali. Excluding the case, the agreement with the Floyd family is larger than the city's combined settlements related to police misconduct from 2006 to 2020, according to city data. Minneapolis pays its settlements out in a fund for legal payouts and workers' compensation claims, and residents have expressed concerns that their taxes are subsidized payments for the misconduct of police while failing to hold officers accountable. Another interesting part. Activists have pushed for legislation that will require officers to carry their own liability insurance with the premiums that could rise after cases of misconduct. Mark Ruff, the city coordinator, said during a news conference that with cash reserves, officials were confident that the Floyd agreement would not lead to an increase in property taxes. You know, you know. At least the taxes is fucking safe. Mm, okay. Taxes. The settlement reflected the the settlement reflected the rise in payments over police abuse and misconduct in recent years. In September, Louisville, Kentucky agreed to pay twelve million to the family of Breonna Taylor, the black woman whose officers shot and killed in her apartment a year ago. Five years earlier, the family of Freddie Gray reached a six point four million settlement with Baltimore after he was fatally injured in police custody. Also in 2015, New York agreed to pay five point nine million to the family of Eric Garner, who died after a police officer used a chokehold on him. 
In some ways, the escalating amounts are indicative of growing public support for holding the police accountable, said Catherine McFarland, an associate professor of law at the University of Idaho who specializes in civil rights litigation. But it's also an issue of precedent, she said. I think that once you have an incrementally larger settlement, it becomes in some way precedent to ask for at least that, end quote, she said. Quote, it gives an attorney a way to say, this is what's been done before on similar facts, but this is even worse, so we should go up above that, end quote. Mr. Floyd's family had sued Minneapolis in July, saying that the police had violated his rights and failed to properly train his officers or fire those who violated department policies. Mr. Crump said on Friday that the settlement was the largest ever reached before trial in a civil rights wrongful death lawsuit involving the police. That it came in a lawsuit over the death of a black man, he says, sends a powerful message that black lives do matter and police brutality against people of color must end. Mm. How y'all feeling about that? How y'all feel? Man, that's Quite some bullshit. <laughs> that's so much bullshit, right? So, like, so how do I get started? I'm, I'm, about to, I'm about to jump in on that a little bit because let's just go back to the whole point of what this all is, right? What, what this represents. It's a settlement. It's a payment for a response to the killing of George Floyd, right? What was the societal reaction, right? What was the worldwide rattle that was heard that as a result of that, right? Like everybody fucking came out. Some of the biggest fucking protests in history. And all they can come up with is twenty seven million to atone for that reaction, right? Like that is to me it's a slap in the face, right? And I get these things aren't all necessarily related on the, the budgetary levels and things like that. That's the city budget. This is a completely different area of industry I'm about to get into. But just for instance, earlier I saw a study or something that was talking about the poor valuation of Black produced projects in Hollywood cost the industry about $10 billion yearly, like annually. Like the amount of money that they, these motherfuckers are willing to drop down the project of upholding white supremacy. And when we have these moments such as the George Floyd uprisings where that reaction caused such a, a large surge of action worldwide. And they look at this and their calculation on this whole situation is just let the departments handle it. You know, we'll just give them a nice little settlement. That'd be a good. We'll show them that we're really rah-rah, fighting the fight. Trust us, we're going to reform things. And to me, it's just, if anything, it's an insult because it's like, oh, that, so... All of that, that's, that, was, that was the price tag for that, $27 million, that's, that's all you can come up with? It's like, okay, we'll see what y'all thinking a little bit, you know? Yeah, it's, it's really a sign, the hegemonic order of things, man. It's, it's, it's how they, you know, let's throw some... The, the gushing over, or Mayor Jacob Frey called the agreement a milestone for Minneapolis' future. They're they, they going to make a fucking statue of the check that the, no, no, no destructive to the Floyd family and, and, and their grievances, but they're going to make a monument to the check because it's a milestone for Minneapolis' future. It, it, it's disgusting the, the way they talk about this. What it, it, it's necessary because it, of course it happens and, it, and it's going to continue to happen because people write stuff like this. People continue to think that they could pay for a life, you know? Self-aggrandizing level of it too, the way they write. Like, it's like look, look at what we're doing. We're so, so forgiving. We're so like, I don't know, like, how the fuck would you put that? It's like flowery as shit to make them look like, look, we're doing such grand gestures. And it's like, man, you ain't doing shit. The benevolent <laughs> leader. Yeah, very self-important shit. Right. You know what stuck me out? I mean, of course, we're reading a fucking New York Times article. Of course, it's just going to have some stupid shit in it sooner or later but what bothered me with the article is the emphasis on setting a precedent right 
and setting a precedent and the amount of money. That's what bothered me, right? None of it had anything to do with any sort of justice, any sort of real reckoning, real resolution for this. Now, of course, we already know the answer is abolition. The answer is abolition and creation of some sort of, of new institution or new organization or new collective that will actually ensure people's public and private safety. That's the answer. I mean, can we get some real accountability? You know, can we get some real community fucking right. like defense up in here? Like these, these motherfuckers in our community, they don't even fucking respond when there's a real crisis or nothing like when that. When there's so a real crisis. Yeah, know? I mean, in many black communities, essentially in many black communities, a lower income, poor black communities around the country, you can get away with murder. You can literally go into somebody's community and just fucking shoot them because the police aren't going to solve that shit. There was a whole bunch of investigations and, and articles. I forgot. I think it was in, in the New York Times just about how there are literally zones in, you know, ghetto communities where you could just kill a nigga and just there's no accountability for it. I mean, then on top of that, in America, our solve rate for murders is, is piss poor. What is it like? 50 percent, 60 percent of murders don't get solved oh, in the United no. States. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's worse than that. Even for, for all crime, I feel I kind of worry about even saying it. But like it's all security theater. It's all mm -hmm. it's all a, a, a veneer to make people feel safe. They don't solve like you said. They don't solve murders. They don't solve rapes. They don't solve anything particularly. It's not their job to solve crime. If if, if you were able to wrap a police officer and wonder if a woman's look lasso or give them a true serum. They would tell right. you it's not my job at all to stop crime. Yeah. And it's fucked up. You know, yeah, that's just what got me was they're more worried about. I don't know. They're more worried about the quantitative than the qualitative. Right. They're more worried about the quantitative than the qualitative. They're worried about, oh, man, this will set a precedent. And, you know, if people get so much money for these sorts of tragedies happening, then the next person will ask for this amount of money. Well, it's made up bullshit anyway. It's, it's fucking artificial anyway. Like we said before, how can you ever place a real value on human life. But to me, this is the deeper problem. This is the problem of, of hierarchy. This is the problem of capital. This is the problem of overall the systems of domination and exploitation is when you start ranking human beings and placing them into different classes and different tiers and in and, and different levels, it automatically leads to you placing some sort of arbitrary value on human life. It automatically sets that up because those who are at the top of the hierarchy have to be greater than those at the bottom. We have to have some sort of mythologies or justifying narratives, whatever it may be, to justify to justify the hierarchy. But that's what you get. You place a value on human life. And that's the logic of fascism, right? Once you get into this place of like, how much is this person worth? How much does this person matter? Right. You get into that's the fascist. That's the authoritarian. That's the fucking Malthusian eco fascist way of looking at life. And we have to do all that we can as human beings, as members of our species to totally reject that way of thinking. Right. Yeah, it's, it's objectification at its core, dehumanization. And it, and it start like his most clear example. George Floyd is no longer here. Twenty seven million is. You know, like his family, they don't have him anymore. They have 27 million. And right. like you said, they deal with the quantitative and not the qualitative. That's the heater of a line, man.
And and then, of course, the very self-aggrandizing way that they spoke about it. This is so great. This is going to be so good for the community. Well, I mean, like that local filmmaker said, I mean, we're just waiting on another George Floyd. And then what are you going to do? You're going to bitch about the new precedent that's being set because now y'all have to shell out more money. And what I find fascinating is all of these states, right? How the government is, oh, well, you know, money. I mean, it just shows you that money is just fake, Right. They can come out they can pull money out of their ass whenever they fucking want to. They, got, they, they got just don't want to do money. it. Plenty of they money. Got plenty of fucking money. Cause like, what is it? <laughs> Here in my city, they fucking the police, the fucking mayor dug in he piece of shit. But he told all the departments, don't ask for more on your budget. But the fucking police have the gall to ask for forty million motherfucking dollars in the middle of a fucking pandemic. In the middle of them being under pressure from organization uh, of activists here in the city who've been putting pressure on to a brief last year and stuff with some of their protests and stuff. And like the, the fuck team was about to sue them and they like, they approved the, like 200,000 to get to a law firm to sue the, I'm not quite sure if they're actually an organization. I think they are though. But anyway, they, they tried to sue them and the judge threw that shit out immediately recently because it was just like, they had no evidence that they were having any kind of conspiracy to do anything other than whole civil acts of disobedience. You know, like they weren't doing anything that was actually against the law. The city, the fucking, you know, the mayor, all the people who are in the mayor's like, you know, pocket, the police chief, like all just fabricating bullshit to try to smear these folks who are out here just, you know, they were spurred just like most folks around the world by the George Floyd uprising, you know, standing up for black lives and shit and it's just it's completely absurd that people who literally just protest and you know and you know they cause a ruckus they stand some you know some real shit out here but ultimately doing nothing that you know should not be getting the full weight of these apparatuses thrown up against them like this you know and then at the end of the day and especially when you see the juxtaposition, right, of like how things, you know, they put on the kick gloves for shit, like what happened at the Capitol on the 6th, or even like they were running up in the Capitol in Michigan here before that, the, the fucking pre-trials, the test runs. The response was always so minor to shit like that. And niggas are actually running up with ARs and shit like that. But when you have people with signs and water bottles and, you know, medics and stuff and legal observers just trying to, you know, act out their rights in this country, or so they're said, to hell if anyway. Yeah, these motherfuckers coming out the full weight of the, the, the state on their heads. And it's just, you, you can see the clear distinctions. It's so absurd. But yeah, Absolutely. like they, they fucking have 40 million. They're asking for 40 million more dollars, like after all this shit this year. It's so stupid. It's, I mean, it's insane. And like you said, I mean, you can clearly see a totally disproportionate response between, you know, people who actually give a fuck about like liberation and human <laughs> rights versus like people who are actively literally making the country a worse place to fucking be in. It's unreal. It's unreal. How does any of that show that this will show that black lives truly matter because they <laughs> now they're fucking billionaires who are going to give away five hundred thousand dollars to make this community better. It's just like what the fuckers could give could make the community better if you just redistributed resources and fucking assets and wealth where it needs Dude, to go. Maybe another department. I swear, in every city, like maybe I could be wrong on this, right? Don't don't quote me on this one hundred percent. But damn near everywhere I've seen where I see like a budget for city breakdowns, like. The police is so overcompensated and then Massive. like every other department yes. is minuscule, yes. minuscule, slim pickings yes. to fucking fund the most important aspects of keeping us all like alive and sane and being able to function in this fucking society. Like, And, and, and my theory is because here in the United States or in, in the West in general, we're still 
it's, it's, it's kind of a theological concept. It comes from this theologian, Walter Wink, and he calls it the myth of redemptive violence. And in societies like ours, in frankly, hierarchical societies, domination-oriented societies and systems like ours, we believe in the myth of redemptive violence, which is this sort of myth, this sort of religion that through violence, we can be made whole again. Through violence, we can be reborn, we can be saved, we can be regenerated, we can be redeemed. That is an American religion, for real. Why do you think so much of our money goes to the military, goes to weaponry, goes to police? You can see it. If you want to know what people's priorities are, look at where their fucking money goes on a macro level and on a micro level. If you really want to know what a society, what a community, what a person values, look at where their money goes. We value violence, force, coercion, domination, right? We think that mm -hmm. the only way to our ability to solve problems in this country is fucking <laughs> it's fucking a need. That's why the Republican Party hasn't been hurt by the dangerous rhetoric that they've spilled over the course of their life. But especially during the last four to six years of under Trump, you know, mm -hmm. instead of them being hurt by that, they've actually seen an increase of, in the Lauren Bobberts and the Ted Cruz's and. They've actually seen an increase in the donations from the public and stuff like that. I, th I think that correlates yeah. to what you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And to me, it just proves that, you know, the great Rosa Luxemburg, the red Rosa Luxemburg, she said it right. Either we're going to have fucking socialism or barbarism. And from what we just finished reading in this fucking news and, and the shit we just finished talking about, we a lot of niggas are choosing barbarism. A lot. Yeah. A lot of niggas are choosing barbarism. A lot. Yeah, it's, it's pretty fucked up. It's sad that a lot of people seem to be choosing it unwittingly. So, like, you know, some mm -hmm. people are fully on board, like, you know, I'm, I'm a full-blown fascist, I'm a full-blown Nazi or whatever. It may yeah, be. They, they love some people shit. are, I see even a lot of people, a, a lot of black people, a lot of Native oh, yeah. Mexican people mm -hmm. sharing the, like I said, unknowingly, they don't know that it's Nazi shit, but, but they won't listen when I tell them it's Nazi shit. And it's fucking sad because really, I think a lot of it does come down to something that we were talking about is the paternalistic instinct, the paternalistic spirit that has been bred into our species since the emergence of hierarchy and domination, the need to be led, the need to, we need an authoritarian daddy. We need a strong man. We need someone that we can run to for security and safety and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, fam, the reality of the situation is that security and safety is a fucking illusion. Like you're never really safe and you're never really secure. That's just what it is. And now, I do think that when it comes to certain things, you can be more safe or less safe. I think that we're less safe with fucking police forces. I think that we're more safe in communities that are built upon mutual support, mutual aid in a community that does not value having transactional relationships with one another. We're safer there. But it's just like a lot of it is fear. A lot of it is a fear of freedom, a fear of I think a lot of people are even afraid of democracy. A fear of liberation. Even a misunderstanding. Like the Mary Bookchin called it the misunderstanding, the, the, the confusing between justice and freedom. What the authors and the civil rights lawyer and the mayor of Minneapolis was talking about. They're saying, okay, we achieved some modicum of justice with this settlement to the Floyd family. When in fact, even like I said, we understand a bunch of things falsely, as some people say, or we understand a bunch of things without truly understanding them. We don't want justice. We want freedom from these acts. We want freedom from a neck on our neck for eight minutes or freedom from no knock raids 
in general, but no knock raids that the police fire into a house uncontrollably and, and kill a 26 year old black woman. We want freedom from the oppression of the police. We don't want justice for the acts that the police may commit. We don't want, and let's even take it even further. We don't want justice for the 10 missing women a day in Mexico. We don't want justice for the trans women who are being preyed upon in America right now, or the indigenous women who are being preyed upon in Canada and Northern America. We want freedom from those acts. And, and a lot of people mistakenly confuse the two. Yeah, yeah that's something that Bookshin talks about in The Ecology of Freedom, how essentially to kind of paraphrase what he says, in the absence of freedom, there's justice, because that's what justice is supposed to to try to do to bring freedom. But there are problems with justice, or at least the sort of modern understanding that we have with justice, because it tries to be impartial, right? What Bookshin calls the principle of equivalence, right? And looking at everyone as if they're equals, when in reality, equality isn't real. People are different, have different aptitudes and skills and abilities. And it's patently false that we're all equals. That's just not true. And what he was saying is that in ancient pre-literate societies, they had the irreducible minimum, right? So it was a person's sort of inalienable right to food, to shelter, to clothing, to those foundational material necessities that you need to live irregardless of your productivity, right? And yeah, we've totally shirked that. Or we'll have very minor, very weak versions of that irreducible minimum, Inadequate. which is what this is, which is what this settlement is. That's what this settlement is. That's what the 27 million to his family is. This is just reparations exactly. on a micro level. Like this is baby reparations. You know what I'm saying? Rather than having a actual irreducible minimum, rather than having a actual I guess you could say reparations or redistribution. But having that in actuality will require totally abolishing, destroying certain aspects of our society and then restructuring and refiguring everything from the bottom up. That's what it would actually require. But we're not going to get that. We're going to get bullshit as reforms that don't work. Baby reparations, weak versions of the irreducible minimum. This is what we're going to fucking get because we can't get past the myth of redemptive violence. We can't squash the paternalistic instinct. So it's just very fucking infuriating. But we know what the answer is. The answer is abolition. The answer is abolition and replacing it with with actual forms of communal, sustainable communal defense. So. This is a great main topic. So now we're going to close it out. We're going to switch over to the Black Joy segment because we need a lot of fucking joy right now because this episode was hella fucking depressing and just pissed me the fuck off. So y'all signed off. Let's be bringing y'all some joy this week. I'll go ahead. I'll, I'll start. I got a surround sound. So I've been listening to everything and Dolby Atmos 5.1. And, I, you know, I don't think I'm ever going back. I don't think I'm ever going to listen to audio in two channels again. <laughs> That's what's been bringing me joy. Hey, I don't blame you, dog. I do not blame you. Glenn, how about you? I've been just kind of chilling lately, so I haven't really been engaged in anything in particular. Something I'm pretty stoked about, my new issue of Lab came in the mail. It was something I kickstarted, uh, well, I held back on Kickstarter like last year. It's about Ron Wimberly, and it features a bunch of different artists just writing on different segments. I forget what this one is about. I think it's about shit, actually which is kind of interesting, like food and shit. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. That's ho that's hilarious. That is funny shit. That is funny. <laughs> 
Yeah, so it's a real big ass like newspaper. It's huge, large pull out illustrations on it and stuff. It's pretty cool. That's dope. That's dope. Yeah, for me, I mean, it's been multiple things. Like I've been reading these two really good books, The Conquest of Happiness by Bertrand Russell. He was like a great like mathematician and philosopher. He was a socialist. And basically in the book, he talks about like the book was written in the fucking 30s and it's so super relevant, despite the some of the misogyny and some bad stereotypes about women and some, of course, very old and regressive views about race or statements about people of color. He was Bertrand Russell was white. But yeah, he just talks about he gives his sort of like philosophy of like why modern society is just so fucking like why people are miserable in a society where we have so much of our material needs are taken care of. And then he gives prescriptions as to how people can actually find true happiness it's really fucking good another one i'm reading that i super recommend is the war of art by stephen pressfield that book is dope as fuck because he basically talks about it's kind of like a psychology of creativity and he talks about how if you're a creative person or just a person who's trying to like engage in any sort of act of like self-development and self-actualization that you'll encounter this mysterious force that he calls the resistance that keeps you from progressing so fucking good. Such a good book. What else? I'm starting to train Muay Thai. So I'll be out nice. here fucking Tony John the fuck out of niggas kneecaps if they talking fucking brazy. <laughs> I'm gonna fucking you up. You know what I'm saying? I'm gonna <laughs> hit you with that chopping kick. You know what I'm saying? All you fucking tanks and all you fascists talking shit. You know what time it is. I'm pulling up. I'm pulling up at the rally. If you niggas is there, I'm pulling up. I'm pulling Round up. House. You better have a hands Everybody on there. Everybody get one. <laughs> I am Everybody roundhousing the fuck IU niggas. Funny. I am kicking you in the face. If, before we move on, if, if, if I could, uh, first I wanted to ask you the title of that Bertrand Russell book. One more time. Oh, The Conquest of Happiness. Bertrand Russell's, Bertrand okay. Russell's the shit, dog. He doesn't like Marxism. He has issues with Marxism. But that's due to the fact that he like met Lenin. And then he also had an analysis of Bolshevism. So I'm like, you got to give him... That was the historical context. I'm pretty sure if, if any of us met Lenin, we'd be like, mm, fuck this communism shit. Like, these niggas are terrible. <laughs> but and, and he wasn't it's too same, fond of like, move. yeah, he was like, nah. And, and he wasn't too fond of like anarchism. Like, he didn't like Bakunin, but he kind of, he, he respected like Kropotkin because he was a scientist. So I was like, oh, I guess. But he is definitely in that sort of like scientific socialism sort of space because he's a rationalist. And a lot of his a lot of his views of morality and ethics is based on like having a rational perspective. Dude, it's so fuck. It's so fucking good. It's such a good book. It's such it a sure. good book. I did. I did forget something that was that brought me joy this week. The, the little collab project, the little collab conversation that between BSA and the Congress Star. Yeah. So beautiful to witness. You know, to see the organization uh, partner and reach across the waters with such a, a radical and revolutionary outfit is beautiful, man. Um, yes. I'm so happy to be a part of this organization. <laughs> yeah, it was super rad. I really dug that video. Yeah, same here. And then they dropped Detroit Build and Fight. They dropped it in there. I was like, oof. There's <laughs> some real internationalist type shit. But I'm telling you, man. Yeah, I'm loving it. I'm telling it. you. It is, it's, it's, it is wonderful to, to start making these connections, to start drawing connections between these struggles. And, you know, that's something that we try to do on this podcast. But, y'all, this has been... A Thousand Cuts. This has been a great episode. Very bleak and depressing episode. So please we swear we're going to bring some, some sort of uplifting stuff in future episodes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Unfortunately, we do have to go through 
the dark stuff because we do have to we have to show people the face of domination we got to show people the face of hierarchy this is what you get you get a lot of people and there's nothing that will show up against yes so please y'all engage in some sort of self-care some sort of self-soothing something go eat some ice cream have sex i don't know because yeah i don't want y'all to be feeling down uh, coming off of hey, this podcast Smoke some, something, man. Go for a walk with your dog. Love on them, something. But yeah, this has been A Thousand Cuts of BSA Podcast. I'm your host, Demetrius, here with my comrades, Glenn and Tony. Thank y'all so much for the love. Thank you so much for the support. Shout out to all of our patrons. We're going to be doing the best that we can to get more content up on Patreon, to get more content up in general. Again, we are regular working class folks. So many things pull on our schedule. So many things pull on our times. We are not professional podcasters, so please give us grace on that. But we are doing the best that we can to get y'all out quality content. Again, this has been A Thousand Cuts. Thank you so much for the love and the support. You can check us out on Spotify, Google Play, Apple, and on SoundCloud. Till next time, peace. Y'all take care. Solidarity.